This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Forever Dog I used to think that this was my town What a stupid thing to think I hear you biting off a brain now I myself am on the brain I used to want to be a real man I don't know what that even means What's up, 3Bs? What's up, Diamond Dogs? What's up, Athletic Gerbils? It's Rhea Butcher, RB, the host of this here podcast called Three Swings, a podcast about baseball and other things. Um, <clears throat> thanks for rolling with the sort of fluid schedule. The, ch- the future is schedule-free. Um, I'm uh, working... I've been consistently working, but it uh, I'm really working, and then this is my last week of work, um, so that has been getting in the way. Also, uh, bench coach Brett is uh, expecting a child any moment now. I mean, honestly, pretty soon, so we've got a lot going on, a lot to be grateful for, uh, but it just kind of gets in the way of the show every now and then, and this week has been that just drinking a little coffee, just leaving all this in because I want it to feel real. Um, yeah, grateful to be working, wrapping up that, getting ready for that shift and that change. I'm going to miss that show. This show I'm talking about is Good Trouble. If you haven't been watching it, this season is really fantastic. Really wonderful to get to be a part of that. Um, and then, you know, just sort of, uh, curious about what's next you know um i speaking of what's next if you are in dc i will be in dc doing stand-up comedy which is uh honestly at a certain point something i never thought i would say again so june 4th and 5th i'm doing two shows each night the times are different for each night so i think it's like 7 and 10 and 7 and 9 30 so just go to my instagram or my twitter and i have links in in my bio for those tickets. I would love to sell them out. Uh, everything is going to be as cautious as possible. I am going to wear a mask. I'm also vaccinated. People will be wearing their masks unless they're at their table and they will be, we will be spread out. So please come to those shows. Would love to sell them out. Would love to help a venue. Would love to, uh, make live performance viable again. So please support that. And if you're, you're not in DC, spread the word for me. I would love that and appreciate it very, very much. Um, and then the things that are going on for me, um, let's see, I feel like, you know, I was for a little while there, I was doing pretty good 
sort of staying off of social media. And I don't know if this, if, if you can relate to this, but I don't, what I've learned in, 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 in my recent life is it doesn't total abstinence from things, uh, all the time. Of course, there are certain things that I, that I practice total abstinence from. Um, but that doesn't total abstinence from everything, anything that is difficult for me or that I'm having, that I'm struggling with, like say social media or eating too much sugar. <laughs> my, my impulse is to then like remove it from my life completely. Um, because in other situations, abstinence has worked with that, but that actually doesn't work all the time. Cause I can't remove everything that causes me difficulty from my life. In fact, I can't even remove, even if I'm like not eating sugar, I, it's not removed from my life. I'm still experiencing it. It's down the street. It's at work. It's in my house, you know, all those things. So it really is like developing a new relationship with these things. So for a while, my relationship was that I didn't get up and get on social media right away. And then even that sort of changed within its own thing of sort of like, okay, you know what? Uh, like I would get up, I would have my quiet time. And then, you know, I'd get into my day and I would get on social media at like nine in the morning. So I'd get up at seven and I wouldn't get on till nine. That was great. Then I was like, you know what? Maybe, maybe we kick it even further down the line to like noon or one. And then sort of naturally on its own, I would sometimes not even get on to like the afternoon or the evening. And by then I've already missed the whole conversation of the day. And so I wouldn't even spend much time on it. But then going back to work and having all this downtime at work, you know, you're on a set and you're waiting a lot. I get sucked right back into the conversation. So the past couple days, I've gotten sucked back into the conversations and just like watched the churn and the burn. But I will say, here's the thing. Every time I get back on social media and I get pulled back in, I do find a something that upsets me so much I have to put it down. So that's positive. Uh, it's positive because I I acknowledge it and I'm like, oh, this is my red flag. You know, <laughs> like, okay, time to put it down. And I also am usually given something that's like long form to read the opportunity to read that and get a lot out of it. And for me, that example last night was uh, there's a really tremendous uh, interview of Sinead O'Connor on the New York Times from I think yesterday. So today is uh, Wednesday the 19th. And so I'm talking about the 18th. So just, you know, Google Sinead O'Connor, New York Times. And I highly recommend reading it, especially if you're around my age, because I feel like our experience of Sinead O'Connor and the ubiquity of that song and her face and just like all of that. And then, and then the experience of uh, her, her uh, fall, her, I mean, I don't want to call it canceling, you know, because <laughs> I just but I mean, that's the obvious connection that I'm about to make. But to her being sort of, you know, just decimated in the press, in the media uh, for tearing up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, um, I just find it fascinating. I find it fascinating for so many reasons, because number one, you know, it. If you if you take that her example and you put it in in contemporary times, like yeah, it's she she experienced this thing that we are calling canceling, right? But but we don't even really know what canceling is because 
what what canceling is to me is different to you that's listening. Like we all have we all have different parameters for everything. I mean, that's ultimately like the 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 liberating concept, right? Eventually. Like at least that's what my experience has been where I'm just like, "Oh, oh, I realize like it does not matter how like clearly I communicate something, how common sense I think something is." There is a point where even my closest friends or even family, people that have known me my whole life, where we are going to not agree on the terms of something that from the outside, it seems like we should, because that is irrelevant. (laughs) Because the point, to me at least, is that we are intended to experience each other and experience our lives, not define each other and define our lives. That is not the point. The experience of... Sinead O'Connor ripping up that picture is more important than what it meant to somebody. Do you know? I I don't know. I don't know if I'm describing this enough, but if you haven't read the article, you know, like that gives you a lot of, it's like, yeah, I could, I could point at the superficial stuff of like, oh, she was right. (laughs) She tore up that picture of the Pope because of the, the, um, the the o- sort of open secret of the Catholic Church and the Catholic diocese hiding decades, if not centuries, of sex- child sexual abuse. That's why she did it. But there's also like a deeper, there's a deeper personal meaning for her that's in the article. And then also like, what is the g- role of the artist? You know? Uh, <laughs> and like, if there is right and wrong, then we are all at ev- every moment of our lives capable of either. And I just, you know, I just like this whole conversation about, you know, the woke mob and cancel culture. And like, I just, you know, it's such a fruitless discussion to me (laughs) because ultimately she's like, she's Sinead O'Connor is basically saying that this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know, she was, she, she, it seems like at the time was even grateful for it. And to me, you know, I always looked at it as like, oh, she got she got the short end of the deal and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, no, actually, she was freed from the bondage of this of this like trajectory that she didn't even want. And that's not even why she did that. She didn't do it to get out. She did it to say something, you know, and like it's just it's it's all so murky. And at the same time, you know, when you start to say like, oh, it's it's complicated or someone's. And it's like, it's also not because it's very straightforward, (laughs) but it's also each person, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's like, I can't, I can't decide for somebody else. What is, I can only decide for myself and I only get to live my own life. And I guess the only other thing I would say is just, and this, I feel like this relates to like, you know, the last thing that we're going to talk about the show, which you can all probably guess what it's going to be, but like. I I try not to be reactionary on Twitter anymore because it has not served me whatsoever. It it uh that place has been one of the most dangerous places I've ever experienced. And you might be like, "Wow, what a privileged life." And I'm like, "Yeah, I mean, yes, and also like it's dangerous because it's dangerous for my internal life. You know, I've been in in much scarier and dangerous physical places than that. 
Um, but right now is the only time that I have, and Twitter is so, so dangerous sometimes. Um, and it's just like a lot of anger, and I call it like a sadness machine, but it's like it really is just like an anger machine, you know? I, I, I used to get so furious with people that I care about. Um, and it's, it's like such a, it's such a, it's such a not good place sometimes. But then at the same time, I find things like the Sinead O'Connor article, which is like, I don't know if I would have read that if I hadn't been on there. So it's, it's always both things, you know, there's always, there's always a positive in everything. Nothing is a hundred percent negative and nothing is a hundred percent positive. It's just not, that's just not how it is. Um, even in the situations where it seems impossible to believe that, you know? But I, I just think it's interesting, and I, 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 I hesitate to ever talk about this person because I don't actually know him, and I haven't really listened to his show very much. And I'll be honest, like I, and I think I've told you guys this. The one time I did listen to his show, I, I learned something. It wasn't from him, but um, so there's always there's always a positive and a negative. You know what I mean? Like nothing ever is a hundred percent anything. And, I just think it's interesting. I, I, I read a quick write-up with some of the quotes from the person himself, Joe Rogan, on his his recent, you know, sort of uh, fear factor around, um, you know, how he thinks that it's going to get to the point where straight white men can't talk. And, you know, like, I get that. I mean, it, I get it because I've been afraid of what might happen in my life. <laughs> I get it. Uh, but that's what happens when you don't have a direct experience with what you're afraid of. Um, cause to me, that's a person who is, you know, he's uh, seeking things, uh, but he, he's seeking answers. He's seeking, he knows what, he knows what answers he wants. And so he's seeking that out. You know, if you, if you look for the answers to, um, you know, why trans healthcare is dangerous if, if that's your question, you're going to find your answer, you know? Um, and so of course it makes it easier to perceive, perceive whoever you think is not on your side or whoever you think is in opposition to you or oppressing you. It, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me to be so afraid of that happening and it makes sense because it's currently happening to people, um, but just not, you know, there's, I have yet to see the GOP passing any legislation or bans against straight white men. You know, there's, there's, there's bans against, uh, you know, uh, trans kids playing sports. So yeah, if you don't, you know, stand up for trans kids playing sports, like, yeah, maybe, maybe there will be, uh, maybe there will be legislation down the road for straight white men. Cause it seems like, you know, we, we are starting somewhere. We're starting with the smallest, so I guess if you think if you think logically that way, eventually we'll come for the biggest group of people. Well, I mean, you maybe aren't wrong, but your defensiveness is is uh, perhaps not in the right place. So you know, I used to be jealous of Joe Rogan and like all the the downloads and all those things, but I'm not jealous of that at all because I would be afraid I was going to lose it all the time. I would be afraid. I, I, I do not wish that on anybody to be afraid that it's going to go away tomorrow. And, uh, I am, uh, you know, in a daily practice of, of accepting myself and living my authentic life. And that's every day, every day I get to recommit to that every day. I get to be more and more curious about who I get to be and who I want to be and who I was intended to be. 
And uh, you can't do that if you're only looking outward. You can't do that if your whole life is just about external circumstances. And I, this isn't even directed at anybody. It's it's directed at just a general thing of like, yeah, man, it makes sense that a lot of people like that because a lot of people care about external circumstances more than they do internal circumstances. So uh, that being said, let's get into some baseball notes and then I'll let you all get back to your day. Uh, so here's some some big news. The Oakland A's on Tuesday announced that they'd been instructed by Major League Baseball to, quote, explore other markets, meaning other cities, to relocate the team to. Previously, it had been reported that the A's planned to build a new waterfront stadium and Oakland had stalled due to the high demands that the team was putting on the Oakland City Council. In late April, the A's submitted a term sheet for the new stadium and adjacent housing retail space to the city council and asked them to approve it before summer recess in July. In that term sheet, the A's demanded that the city of Oakland spend $855 million on infrastructure in exchange for what it projects would be $955 million in general fund revenue and $450 million in community benefits. But that return would be stretched over 45 years. Um, the Oakland City Council had not yet voted on the A's proposal prior to Tuesday's announcement because, according to the council, the term sheet was insufficient and they had not yet <clears throat> received a full list of deal terms from the A's. Quote, the term sheet doesn't contain funding details or clearly spell out who would pay for what. While it promises that the A's would pay for the $1 billion ballpark and tap developers to finance and build thousands of residencies, a hotel, and other buildings in the proposal, the term sheet calls for creating two tax districts to pay for costly infrastructure in and around the project. Nor does it contain a public analysis to indicate whether the city would benefit or by how much. So a pretty, pretty... <laughs> It's it's not lost on me that they didn't they didn't do their homework and then they went to their uh you know dad as the principal and said help us help us pass this class without doing any of the work. Not surprised that they went they went upstairs for the muscle in Rob Manfred and uh you know instead of doing their due diligence and doing right by the Oakland or the city Co council of Oakland they just went ahead and said, nope, let's do a hostile takeover or a hostile flight and get out of here. Um, many view Tuesday's announcement as a negotiation tactic on the part of MLB and the A's designed to pressure the city of Oakland into hastily approving the new ballpark, precisely, because after losing the Warriors and the Raiders to relocations over the past two years, the last thing the city wants right now is to lose the A's as well. And with that in mind, City Council President Nikki Fortuno-Boss, Vice Mayor Rebecca Kaplan, and Council Member Carol Fife reiterated on Tuesday that the Oakland City Council is committed to negotiating in good faith for a strong future for the A's in Oakland. And we invite the A's and MLB to do the same by agreeing not to seek relocation while the A's complete the project process. And the council further reiterated that Tuesday's relocation announcement came without giving the council an opportunity to receive and vote on a proposal and did not even wait for the time requested for the vote. So, I mean, pretty shitty tactics, to be quite honest, uh, from a corporation uh, <laughs> to a city government. Um, now, I don't I don't have a huge faith in uh <laughs> government. I don't have complete faith in government. However, I will say that, you know, uh, it, the intention is for government to protect its uh, citizens from corporations. 
our government is not designed to protect us from, you know, uh, other countries, although that is what it's it wants us to think. But our government is essentially supposed to be lawyers for us <laughs> against corporations and to provide us with services um, so that, you know, we can actually like survive and live. Ideally, that's what happens. And that, that's what they it sounds like this is what the city council is trying to do. And the A's are, you know, looking at the stat sheet and saying, well, we've got them over the barrel so we can do whatever we want. Like, we don't have to respect the city or its government. We can just we can just threaten them, basically. Um, and also, I I just want to say, too, and I got to pull this up as I'm talking about it because I didn't. Bench Coach Brett got me really beautiful notes. Um, and But I want to add this. Kevin O'Shea is the name of the, the comedian that I RT'd, retweeted the other night, um, because he said specifically... Where did it go? Hang on a second. Um, oh, yeah. In an amazing coincidence, the Oakland A's are demanding public funding match with the owner's other businesses, the gap lost during the pandemic. Now, I don't know how 100% true that is. And to get a little, you know, like this might be the one, the one exit or the one exit, the one um, episode where I just fully embrace the Joe Roganism. But like, I don't know. I would not put it past them. It's it's not surprising to me that they would want to use this to try to recoup the money that they lost um, because that's how businesses work and that's how capitalism works. You know, that's truly, truly how capitalism works. Um, the current lease on the Oakland Coliseum where the A's have called home uh, since 1968 expires in 2024. And though some view the Coliseum grounds as an acceptable site to build a new facility, the A's and, the, and MLB have both taken the position that the location is not a viable option for the future of the club. Now, I've been to the Oakland Coliseum. I will say it is in a state of disrepair. Um, it is not. It it felt like I was in Cleveland Municipal Stadium in 1988. And this is not, I'm not saying this to be shitty. I'm just saying this that like somebody has dropped the ball in terms of taking care of that stadium and giving fans a, a not, not just a viable option, but a safe one. I mean, I literally, there was duct tape on the floor. Um, so, you know, and, and, and this is, this is just a steady drumbeat that you can continually talk about with stadiums and cities of, uh, you know, these teams come in and they tell the city it's going to do jobs, it's going to grow this, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. And then they don't hold up their end of the bargain. And then they just like churn and burn. And yeah, it might be 50 years, but that's a, a long time to churn and burn and not take care of something. And personally, as just like someone who uh, believes in like conservation and like reduce, reuse before you recycle, um, you know, that stadium is out in the middle of nothing with tons of like a huge parking lot, which they would probably do somewhere else. And so it seems to me that it would be much better for everyone if they just built on the pad that was already there and just built up like uh, residencies and hotels and stuff out where they already are. It's just like they don't want to do that. They want to do something new and new usually means ground from the ground up. And so. Um, the whole situation just feels really sad to me. And like, uh, it's, it's sad to me cause I, I have 
been an Oakland A's stan because they, I hate using that phrase, but a, a fan because, they, you know, they invited me to throw out a first pitch for them. They were very kind, very supportive. One of two. <laughs> I've been making a baseball podcast for four years and they are one of two baseball Twitters that follow me. Uh, Major League Baseball Twitters that follow me um, as of today. <laughs> it's the Padres and the Oakland A's. Those are the two teams that were willing to follow me. <laughs> you know, like speaking of Joe Rogan, it's like, you got to be kidding me. Like I, I've, I've made a grassroots podcast with the help of my friends and nope, can't do it. Couldn't possibly. So sure. It's, it's, it's definitely a fear that in, I don't know, a hundred or 200 years, maybe straight white men won't be allowed to speak, but wow. Okay. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, and moving on to our next little item, uh, this one, I literally was going to text uh, my fantasy baseball friends last night, like before the game started or the West Coast game started and say, who's going to throw the no hitter tonight? Um, and then it ended up, oh, it did actually happen. I didn't even pay attention to <laughs> last night was the first night that I actually got to really watch any baseball because I was at my friend's house. She's out of town. And so I was watching her MLB network and they said the F word, not fans in the stands. Like the literal host said the F word multiple times. I don't understand how they can say the F word on MLB network, but they can't have me on. So on Tuesday night, Detroit Tigers right-handed pitcher Spencer Turnbull threw the fifth no hitter of the season in a 5-0 win over the Seattle Mariners. Who would have had that on the bingo card? We're absolutely going to hit the seven, the, the, the seven uh, no hitter record this year with other four no hitters this year. Uh, the other four no-hitters this year were thrown by Wade Miley of the Reds, John Means of the Orioles, Carlos Rodon of the White Sox, and Joe Musgrove of the Padres. I've had two of those uh, in my fantasy lineup. And Wade Miley, I was this close to nap to picking up for that, that uh, no-hitter. Um, and I personally include Madison Bumgarner's uh, no-hitter in here as well. So to me, there's six. Five no-hitters through May 18th matches the 1917 Major League Baseball season for the most in baseball history by that date. The most no-hitters in a season is seven, which happened in 1990, 91, 2012, and 2015. The 2021 season is on pace for 20 no-hitters. Let's see if we can do it. Of the five no-hitters this season, two were thrown against Seattle at T-Mobile Park, making the Mariners the first team since the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2015 to get no-hit twice in a month. And with Turnbull's no-hitter, Mariners veteran third baseman Kyle Seeger became the first player in MLB history to participate in nine no-hitters for or against with a single franchise. He's been part of Seattle teams that have thrown four no-hitters and gotten no-hit five times. Congratulations, Kyle Seeger. Spencer Turnbull is the, only the third Detroit Tiger pitcher to throw a no-hitter in the last 30 years, joining Justin Verlander with two and Jack Morris. Not my favorite person. This is the eighth no-hitter in Tigers history. Turnbull had never gone more than seven innings in any of his previous previous 49 starts over three seasons. And in 2019, he led MLB in losses with a 3-17 and 17 record. But on Tuesday night, Turnbull leaned on a fastball in the mid-90s and a biting slider to keep Seattle's bases, batters guessing, fanning nine and walking two on route to his first no-hitter. Congratulations, Spencer Turnbull, I would not recommend picking him up in your fantasy baseball league. 
Now, on to the big story. But before that, I just want to give a major shout out to Shohei Otani, who is having a fantastic season. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, he's just a gorgeous human being. He's uh, he's top five pitching, top five hitting. Uh, and he hit an opposite field home run over the green monster the other night with a flick of the wrist. Um, he is a specimen. And if we were living in a different reality, if baseball was a different game, which we're about to talk about, this is all we would be. He is all we would be talking about. But because of so many factors, Shohei Otani is just not what we're talking about. And instead, we talk about things like unwritten rules. Once again, the so-called unwritten rules of men's professional baseball were in discussion this week after Chicago White Sox DH your man Mercedes hit a ninth inning home run off Minnesota Twins position player. And I will add not simply position player, but primarily DH Will Anza Studio to cap off the White Sox 16-4 blowout win over the Twins on Monday night. Critics of the home run argue that because the game had ceased to be competitive and because the Twins had essentially accepted defeat by putting a position player on the mound, Mercedes' home run was, quote, poor sportsmanship and, quote, disrespectful to the opponent. One of the loudest critics was Mercedes' own man manager. Can we be shocked? Tony LaRussa, who on Tuesday called the home run a big mistake. LaRussa went on to say the fact that he's a rookie and excited helps explain why he was just clueless. But now he's got a clue. I was upset because that's not a time to swing 3-0. I knew the twins knew I was upset. He missed a 3-0 take sign. With that kind of a lead, that's just sportsmanship and respect for your opponent. Mercedes responded to the criticism by saying that he's just trying to be himself. I'm going to play the game. I can't be another person. To which Larissa responded, I heard he said something like, I play my game. No, he doesn't. He plays the game of Major League Baseball. Respects the game. Respects the opponents. And he's got to respect the take sign. On Tuesday night, Twins reliever Tyler Duffy threw behind Mercedes when he came to the plate in the top of the seventh inning. Duffy was eject ejected, and moments later, Minnesota manager Rocco Baldelli was as well. Before the game, Baldelli had expressed his own dissatisfaction with Mercedes' home run. Wash, rinse, repeat. You know what I mean? After the game, Larusa defended the twin strategy of throwing at Mercedes. I'm suspicious if somebody throws at somebody's head, then I'm suspicious. But I don't have a problem with how the twins handled it tonight. Despite, is he the manager of the twins or the White Sox? That's what I would like to know. Despite LaRusso's criticisms, Mercedes received support across baseball and throughout sports media by players and pundits who expressed dissatisfaction with MLB's culture of, quote, unwritten rules. So here is our positive. I've covered the negative. Here is the positive. Giants pitcher Alex Wood wrote on Twitter, if there's a position player pitching in a big league game, all rules are out the window, in my honest opinion. Plus, do y'all realize how hard that is to launch a 49-mile-an-hour pitch, 400 feet, LOL? Give the people what they want. And Mercedes' teammate Tim Anderson chimed in on Instagram, saying the game wasn't over. Keep, going, keep doing you, Big Daddy. I will also add that I believe in the time since Brett, bench coach Brett wrote these notes, sent them to me, and I am now reading them. Lance Lynn, pitcher for the White Sox, has also thrown in his support for his teammate over his manager, uh, which I think is fantastic. I would love to find the exact quote because I think it's important because uh, <clears throat> I want to then quote what, what uh, La Russa said uh, in response to his pitcher. 
Lance Lynn on unwritten rules. Quote, if a position player is on the mound, there are no rules. Let's get the damn game over with. And if you have a problem with whatever happened, then put a pitcher out there. I can't agree more. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, there's some fun to be had uh, with this whole position player on the mound thing. Um, I mean, there was some like cute stuff between Anthony Rizzo and Freddie Freeman, but we don't get it both ways. It's not both ways. You don't get to like have a good time and then also not like it when something happens that you don't like. That's just not the way that it works. And I do. I agree with Alex Wood, like how hard it is to hit that home run. I also just want to give a shout out to like Jace Tingler right now for having done the same bullshit that Tony LaRusa did and then be willing to uh, perhaps have some conversations with his players, uh, have some conversations with specifically the player he was calling out, Fernando Tatis Jr., um, and then be willing to say, you know, maybe we're wrong on some of this stuff because I think that's really important. It's important to uh, be able to like to to sit with the the outrage, you know, like because because this is what we're getting at too with the the whole Roganism of all of it is that. There is outrage. There is manufactured outrage. It is like a lot uh, if you're on Twitter or whatever it is. But if you step outside of Twitter and then you go, huh, people are upset. Maybe I should sit with that a little bit. Maybe I should consider that, especially when you're in a leadership position. Uh, And to me, I just cannot. I don't care. I don't care how much you have won. I don't care how how uh, I don't care. I, you do not. I would rather Tony Larusa. If I was Tony Larusa, which I'm clearly not, but if I was in the position of Tony Larusa, I I personally would think it would be better for me to say I have no comment at this time than it would be to throw a rookie under the bus and side with the other team. You are siding with another team that you do not work for. And again, I think this goes to show what the sort of quote old boys club that we're all talking about, which keep men out too, by the way, because the old boys club is the good old boys club and the good old boys club is wealthy white elites. (laughs) And those can be women. They can be men. The women only get in so far. There's always a back room that the women can't get into, but that's usually wealthy white elites. And that is the conversation that we're actually having. That is, this is, this is class war. (laughs) This is a class conversation because Lance Lynn said that. And then Tony LaRussa said something to the effect of Lance Lynn has a locker and I have an office. Now, if that's not class warfare, I don't know what is. Lance Lynn and your man Mercedes do not work for Tony LaRussa. They all work for the White Sox. That is their employer. Tony LaRussa didn't hire those guys. The same guys hired Tony LaRussa that hired Lance Lynn and hired your man Mercedes. They might have different titles, but the, all those people have positions at the White Sox. So this is a class conversation. And I'm not stripping away any of the racial and ethnic undertones of any of this, that if this was a white player that had done this, maybe we would be having a different conversation. And it's always an unfortunate rhetorical because I can't think of a time when we've had this conversation about a white player doing something like this. 
And also, you know, white players uh, maybe are more willing, more inoculated and like not not willing, but just like, uh, you know, they want to be a part of the old boys club. So they do this kind of shit. So I'm grateful for white players like Alex Wood and Lance Lynn standing up for this and, and who who are not in a position to do the <laughs> hit a home run themselves. I mean, Alex Wood has. Uh, and, and standing up for this and having class solidarity uh, for somebody that, you know, is on their team and also not on their team. But who is your team when your manager starts saying things like, I'm your boss, you know? Um, you know, in my own life, I have spent a lot of time getting really curious about what it means to be a manager or to be a leader. Like, do I want to be a boss or do I want to be a leader? Do I want to be somebody like somebody like Dave Ross? Like you guys know, I'm not a Cubs fan. I have a, a big old chip on my shoulder against the Cubs, but I just see, you know, there, there are many, many ways of being a manager. And I, I truly think that, that what Tony LaRusso is doing is incredibly bad for the game. Number one, it's, it, you know, it's taking up valuable airtime when we could be talking about the game. Um, and I mean, I don't know what else I really need to say about it other than, you know, it, it, it is, uh, it, it's so stupid and it is exactly what I and so many other people foresaw when, when this guy was hired, it's he's, he's 77 years old and like, are we going to have fun or not? And also like, it's a baseball game. So what are we supposed to do? You just get, just if if the game is fourteen to four in the sixth inning, then why don't you shake hands and be done with it? Let everybody go home. Make sure nobody gets hurt. You know, like then what are we doing here? You know, if the if you're not supposed to do this and you're not supposed to do that, well, don't throw three balls in a row. As far as I'm concerned, I just it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous and it's a waste of time. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's oppressive, you know, it's like, it's oppressive language. It's oppressive. It's an oppressive experience of something that's supposed to be fun, which is life. <laughs> this guy is having a breakout year and you're telling him, stop, don't do that. Stop. Don't do that. I really thought we had gotten somewhere and we did. We did because so many more players are, are being, are willing to speak out against this kind of bullshit um, I'm grateful for the Tatis Grand Slam, you know, because now so many people are like, no, thanks. Um, but I just really don't like how much, I mean, the MLB network was dining out on this. Like they just love to churn this kind of shit around and, and point the finger at the player. And I hate it. I can't stand it. I cannot stand it. Okay. I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, I Lucas Giolito seems to have righted the ship, and I had him on my bench. So that's 24 points. <laughs> Not in my matchup. Um, I hope everybody's having a good week. I hope you're able to find some positive out there in the negative and some negative in the positive, um, just so that we can keep everything balanced. You know, I'm all about that temperance tarot card these days. Uh, there's no absolute anything. The only thing we can do is be kind to ourselves and selves and to others as much as we possibly can every day. So if you can spread some love today, you've done your job, whether it's just for yourself or your pet or your neighbor, or even just, you know, smiling under your mask to somebody. Um, that is a job well done. 
and I'm grateful for you. Thank you for listening to the show. Please let your friends know or let yourself know. Buy some tickets to my shows in D.C. I would love to sell them out to support a venue and myself and live comedy. Um, that is June 4th and 5th. It's at Pearl Street Live and put on by D.C. Draft House Comedy. So go check those out. Buy some tickets. Spread the word. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you liked it, you liked it. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.